1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies. This is your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my great pleasure to be joined by Dr. Francis M. Carroll. He's the author of America and the Making of an Independent Ireland, published in 2021 by the New York University Press. It's part of their Gluckman Irish Diaspora series. Dr. Carroll, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the show.
0: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This is a great pleasure.
1: Well, this is going to be a really fun conversation. I'm, I'm so excited to get into it. But first, I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, I'm a, uh, a an historian uh, at the University of Manitoba, Professor Emeritus. Um, I was hired as the, the U.S. diplomatic historian, and that was my introduction to all of this. My uh, original intention was to try to figure out uh how the irish question obstructed uh, close anglo-american relations in the early 20th century and i went off to trinity college dublin to do a phd on that subject and it's uh it's occupied me ever since <laughs> that was back in the 1960s <laughs>
1: Oh, that's wonderful. So, so this book, uh, America and the Making of an Independent Ireland, you, you've just uh, it's just come out as part of this this um, this new series by the New York University Press. What what led you to be interested in the the specific topics that you cover here, and, and I guess what's the story behind this particular book?
0: Well, it, it's it, on on one level, it's a uh, it's an outgrowth of that old PhD thesis. Uh, which was written uh, 50 years ago. Um, And uh, in fact, I was in Ireland during uh, the 50-year anniversary of 1916. But uh, I was invited to uh, uh, the New York University Irish Studies Program, Glucksman Ireland House, to participate in their uh, centenary of 19... uh, celebration of 1916. And I was so struck by uh, how... How strongly they asserted the U.S. role uh, in 1916. Uh, the then director uh, Joe Lee had the uh, the, the wonderful remark: uh, uh, "No America, no New York, no 1916." <laughs> wow! <laughs> which uh, which pushed the uh, the idea <laughs> uh, quite substantially. So. I, given the, the writing that I'd done since the first book and given the opening up of, of documents uh, and the availability, the ready availability of material on the internet or uh, through uh, 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 photocopying, I decided to, to rework uh, much of what I had written in the original book, and expanded into the 1920s, which I, mm. which I had done in articles, but never uh, in a in a uh, under two covers. <laughs> so I, uh, I really had a lot of fun uh, putting this together and emphasizing the role both of the Irish American community and subsequently of the American government as well. I think the role of the U.S. government has been really underrated. Uh, So I hope I've I've, uh, drawn attention uh, to the fact that uh, both during the First World War and in the 1920s, the the US government was was very willing to give its support uh, to the notion of Irish self-government and to the notion of diplomatic recognition in the 1920s.
1: You've mentioned the Irish-American population um, that plays such an important part in this story. I, I was struck by some of the figures that you gave early in the book of, of the Irish diaspora in the U.S. Can you just give us a, a sense of just the scope and scale of what kind of population we're talking about here?
0: Well, it was really uh, quite substantial. The uh, the migration from, uh, from Ireland, from the the great famine from from the uh, 1840s right up into the early 20th century was was substantial so that between say 1910 and 1920 the census years the the number of of irish born people citizens in the united states and their children uh, ran to somewhere between 4 and 5 million and the number of of uh, third and fourth generation um, Americans uh, of Irish descent was was upwards of of 20 or 21 million, uh, which was was a substantial portion of the United States, made all the more relevant by the uh, uh, almost unique way in which the uh, the Irish uh, American community had taken a, a, a very prominent role in local politics. They were a political force. So the U.S. government and to some extent the British government had to really take into account what the power, the potential power anyway, of this uh, of this community was in shaping U.S. policy.
1: So uh, 20 million or so people, I think you said that something like uh, almost 20 percent of the U.S. population at this
0: time. That's correct. The The U.S. population is about 90 million. If I remember correctly, uh, but in 1920, um, so that that 20 million was a big chunk of that uh, mm. that total number. That's fascinating. Not not, ever, not not all of them were involved in Irish American activities, but the potential there was really significant.
1: So much of what we now think of as this this making of an independent Ireland is this event called the Easter Rising. So so what is the Easter Rising and and how did how did public opinion of of this especially this Irish diaspora in the US understand what was going on?
0: Well, it's a it's a, an incredible and rather improbable story. Uh up until the First World War of course, the the major effort in the United States was was among the Irish community was to support the Home Rule party which would theoretically provide um, or ideally provide uh, uh, self-government within uh, the British Empire uh, home Rule. Uh, but Home Rule was uh, seriously resisted by unionists throughout Ireland, particularly in the north and the unionists constituted a, a major, portion of the conservative party so it was very difficult uh in these circumstances for the for the government to actually just pass legislation and and put um, home rule into place and then the first world war broke out so everything was suspended the home rule bill was passed but not enacted uh and uh, things were in suspension and among the uh, the Republican element in the United States, which was very small at this time, uh, they began to work with the United Irishmen, uh, or the United Brotherhood in Ireland, uh, to mount a rebellion within the the war, and hopefully from their point, in alliance with Germany, or support at least from, uh, from Germany, and you'll remember that uh, so Roger Casement went to Germany in disguise and tried to raise a, an Irish regiment within the captured prisoners and to negotiate a relationship with Germany to support uh, a, a rebellion. And by 1916, with a lot of support from this Republican uh, community in the United States, the, the Clan Gale, uh, with money and uh uh with uh, with all kinds of verbal su- support the 1916 rebellion took place now everybody in the <laughs> or, or, or large numbers of people in any case within the irish community in the united states and in ireland regarded that as a betrayal of the home rule party and uh, the, the irish parliamentary party uh, and the whole direction Uh, of Ireland prior to the First World War. But the British execution of the leaders of the the 1916 rebellion really began to change uh, opinion, both in Ireland uh, and in the United States. Uh, The the argument being if they were prisoners of war, they should be uh, 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 classified as such and put in in prisoner of war camps. And if they were civilians, they should go before a a civil uh, trial. And instead they were executed by a a military trial, an army tribunal. And so opinion began to shift after 1916 uh, in support of of, uh, a stronger sense of independence rather than home rule. Uh, And that, that had growing strength, what became the Sinn Fein movement. Now, Sinn Fein preceded all of this, but it was the agency in Ireland which picked up after the 1916 rebellion
1: you've mentioned that world war 1 is is happening at least on the european continent when all of this um is beginning to take place america has not yet entered this conflict uh, at least not formally and and then when america is now about to enter and join the allied forces there's some negotiations that are starting to happen between the us and the british government uh, that's Revolved around the Irish question, right? About their involvement with this this uh, military conflict. What what are the how do, how is Ireland starting to shape America's involvement in World War One?
0: Well, it's a very interesting procedure uh, in which first Woodrow Wilson uh, instructs the uh, U.S. ambassador in uh, uh, in London uh, to approach Lloyd George, who's uh, who had within the last the previous six months formed a, a coalition government that to facilitate close cooperation between the United States and, and Britain in the war, it would be of of enormous assistance to resolve this Irish question, to give the Irish some form of self-government so that the uh, anti-British agitation in the United States would be uh, would be undercut in some way, and when when uh, A.J. Balfour, the, the foreign secretary, visited the United States uh, in the in the summer uh, of 1917 to work out the details of coordinating uh, the the war effort, uh, Secretary of State Lansing had him for a private conversation to make the same point that um, uh, the resolution of of this. Uh, Uh, unresolved uh, Irish self-government question uh, would facilitate close uh, U.S.-British relations uh, in the war. And the failure to do that just created all sorts of problems for the U.S. government, uh, which which, of course, actually unfolded. Uh, So here was both the President and the Secretary of State trying to reach the British government to get some progress on this solution. Uh, And the Irish Convention of 1917-18, in summary, set up uh, at Lloyd George's uh, 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 organization, attempted to do that, but it did not reach a... uh, a conclusion that allowed the government to implement any form of self-government. So throughout the war, this issue remained a sore point uh, right up until um, uh, the armistice.
1: Well, speaking of the armistice, you, you've, you've talked a bit about the German involvement uh, in some of the early parts of this Irish uprising. And this now becomes a, a major point, uh, or you could say a thorn in some of Wilson's efforts to, to get the the Treaty of Versailles and his his um, dreams for this League of Nations to, to receive popular support back at home. What? How does that dynamic play out?
0: Well, it's a here again. It's an interesting sort of complication, seemingly unrelated to the issues that Wilson is trying to uh, uh, to resolve at, at, at the peace conference. But uh, one one way that the uh, the Irish American community and the irish community itself uh, could reconcile itself to the war effort was wilson's uh, uh assertion that that the uh, the war must be uh, the war must guarantee the rights of small nations and the uh, uh the right to self-determination every every country uh, had the right to live under a government of its own choice. And this was articulated in in a number of ways. And both the uh, the, the, the nationalist community in Ireland and the Irish American community rallied behind that uh, th- that kind of assertion, uh, so that when the when the peace conference started, uh, the Irish felt that, Ireland should be brought before the, the peace conference. Having, uh, the British Parliament having failed to resolve the question from from 1914 to 1918, uh, uh, the peace conference should be the uh, the settlement. And of course, the peace conference really focused on on Germany and Austria, and didn't uh, didn't embrace any uh, any other countries. and And the result was. Certainly the Irish-American community, and I dare say elements of the Irish community as well, felt betrayed. They'd been promised, in in a manner of speaking, self-determination. This was what the war was being fought for. And uh, yet they didn't qualify at the the Versailles conference. So within the United States, anyway, a lot of the resistance to... uh, Uh, the signing of the the Versailles Treaty and U.S. membership in the League of Nations uh, was obstructed by uh, uh, angry Irish-Americans who felt that uh, uh, this was not the peace treaty and the the solution to the war uh, that they'd been promised. Mm. Now, there were other elements, certainly, that contributed to the defeat of the League of Nations, but the the Irish... uh, uh the Irish obstruction was a, a major element.
1: Well, there's this this long kind of post-war period that your your book starts to cover, cover you know, into the 20s, which is some of the, the new material that you mentioned the, at the start of our conversation. Public opinion is starting to be shaped by by this commission that's set up. There's there's also. Um, a, a staggering uh, kind of maneuver to raise financial support. So I wonder what's going on in this post-war period, that's that's forging a, a new kind of relationship between uh, America and this this new government trying to sort itself out.
0: Well, it's it's a here again. It's a very interesting procedure in which the Irish American community to assist uh, the 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 new Doyle aaron government. Uh, created in January of, of 1919 as a result of the, the general election in the United Kingdom in, in, in December, which, which brought a huge majority of, uh, of Sinn Féin uh, uh, representatives uh, who refused to take their seat in, in Parliament in Westminster and, and met in, in uh, as the Doyle Aaron and declared in, in de- independence. And the Irish-American community jumped forward to support uh, that, that movement uh, and they used the language and the imagery of the First World War. Uh, the United States raised money for the war by the sale of liberty bonds and the Irish-American community uh, supported the Doyle-Aaron uh, government by uh, selling bond certificates. Uh, the uh, uh, anti-German uh, and uh, anti-Central uh, uh, powers uh, uh, publicity was generated by the, the Bryce commissions on on atrocities in Belgium and the Turkish atrocities and the, uh, the, among the Armenian community uh, in Asia Minor, uh, and so an American commission on conditions in Ireland, uh, led by not by Irish Americans but by uh, by a uh, 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 kind of old line uh, uh, liberal Americans. And then uh, enormous amounts of money were raised for relief here again, like like Hoover's uh, uh, relief in Belgium and and subsequently in Eastern Europe. The American Committee for Relief in Ireland uh, raised uh, about five million dollars, just over five million dollars, with the support of of the new president, uh, uh, Warren G. Harding. So here again, the uh, federal government uh, became involved uh, uh, at least tangentially in this uh, process. So all altogether, and, and the, the bond certificates raised over uh, uh, $5,600,000, uh, 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 which was about two-thirds of the Doyle's revenue. So it it really helped to keep the Doyle functioning uh, in 19, uh, 19 1920 uh, and 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 21, it was a, a major source of, of income. Now, how much pressure that put on the British is is hard to say, but it was clearly an element in their thinking that uh, these, uh, uh, this situation is 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 deteriorating rather than than uh, coming to a resolution. Clearly, the Irish uh, and the Irish American community uh, were were not going to accept a. Uh, uh, a return to status uh, school, so it was a it was a huge effort uh and it did involve the uh, the u.s government at at several levels which is really quite interesting
1: well through throughout this book which obviously as the, as the title even suggests the the primary theme is the relationship between america the u.s and and a new independent ireland uh, there's this this kind of counter melody that as as American friendship with Ireland is growing, it, it's often at the expense uh, of of American British relations. And there's this episode that I think illustrates what's at stake really well and that's this this visit that the Secretary of State Frank Kellogg takes, um, to Europe, and and he snubs the British, and and decides to go to um, the new Irish Free State instead. What what's going on in this story?
0: Well, that is a really fascinating episode, and and I'm so surprised that that other historians haven't picked up on this. Uh, it gets a mention, it gets a line or two, uh, but uh, the. Uh, the, the, the kind of public relations uh, um, element of this is, is really enor- uh, enormous. Um, the Kellogg-Briand pact was one of the major events in the, in the interwar years. Um, historians are still debating as to whether uh, they outlawry of war uh, was in any way effective or whether it was just a uh, uh you know uh, 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 a wishful uh, uh, s- a statement but at the time it was regarded as a, a major major event um and uh, and Kellogg had uh, had arranged to go over to Paris to to uh, to to together with uh, uh with uh Agree on to sign the pact, and and a whole number of, of European powers, including the Irish Free State, uh, were invited to sign the uh, the pact also. And uh, in the context of, of uh, William Cosgrave's visit to the United States uh, earlier in the year, Cosgrave had uh, had invited Kellogg. Uh, to come to visit Ireland, uh, which was a a, a, a a nice polite gesture, but but uh, uh, diplomats did not, or, or uh, foreign secretaries and secretaries of state did not travel around uh, very much in, in the 1920s. Unlike the present, seems quite uh, unconventional. Secret- the Secretary of state is always uh, uh, on the move, and even the president, as we now. Know uh, with the, uh, uh, the the climate conference and the uh, uh, G- the G twenty conference, the president is always uh, 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 in international travel. But that was not the case in the nineteen twenties. Uh, so that the likelihood of uh, Kellogg going to Ireland at the invitation of, of Cosgrave was quite slight, but for the fact that that uh, Kellogg had been minister. Had had been ambassador to Great Britain for several years before becoming Secretary of State, and um, his uh, his senior figure in the London Embassy was now the the Minister to Ireland. Uh, uh, Sterling was the. uh, was the first uh, uh, U.S. minister to, to Ireland, and the, the, the two families were on, on very good relations, so there was some personal motivation uh, for, for going as well. But all of that was interrupted by the, <laughs> the peculiarities of, of uh, uh, the breakdown of the uh, uh, Anglo-American uh, Japanese uh, uh, cruiser, uh, settlement no agreement was reached the, the French and the Italians refused to participate in the negotiations uh, and the three powers were unable to agree and um, Britain and France worked out an arrangement where they would uh, they would agree to unlimited uh, medium range cruisers of, uh, of 6, thousand tons and guns uh, uh, of four to four to six inches, but put limits on heavy cruisers of 10,000 tons and uh, uh, six to eight inch guns, which was what the United States needed, because it didn't have a lot of imperial bases around the world. So it needed cruisers that could stay at sea for quite a period, a period of time. and. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> President Coolidge was outraged when uh, this uh, announcement was made without consultation with the United States, and and seriously questioned whether Kellogg should go to uh, 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 Paris to sign the, the agreement, much less uh, trips to London and uh, and Ireland. But a uh, <laughs> an arrangement was worked out where. Uh, uh, Kellogg would go to Ireland, but not to to London. And in fact, he would travel on a U.S. cruiser, with, uh, <laughs> which, which the, the significance could not have been lost. The USS Detroit uh, took uh, Kellogg and Cosgrave, who was urged to come and sign the treaty, uh, rather than the, the Minister of External Affairs. And so Kellogg had a state visit. Uh, to Dublin. And and this is significant because the United States is the only international country, the only uh, sovereign state which had actually recognized the Irish Free State at this point. Uh, uh, France and Germany and the Vatican uh, extended diplomatic recognition the following year, 1929. But in 1928, uh, this was the uh, uh, the United States was the only the only country. So here you have the uh, uh, the, the, the kind of man whose moment in time had 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 arrived. Uh, Frank B Kellogg was uh, a world celebrity uh, in the aftermath of the signing of the the Kellogg-Briand uh, Peace Pact. And where does he go? He goes to Dublin. Uh, and was greeted with uh, uh, open arms and h- huge parades and freedom of the city and uh, the enormous dinners, uh, celebratory dinners. Uh, uh, and and he uh, and he ignores Great Britain altogether. It was a clear signal that the United States was not happy about this cruiser uh, uh, arrangement. But it was an enormous boost uh, for Ireland and and particularly in the context of the tensions between the the Republicans in Ireland and the supporters of the the Irish Free State. Uh, The the hardcore Republicans continue to argue that the Irish Free State was not the the legitimate uh, Irish government, that the second Doyle remained the uh, the legitimate government, despite the elections and despite the signing of the treaty and all of this other apparatus. Uh, and, and so this was seen as a strong endorse, international endorsement uh, for the legitimacy of the Irish Free State. Uh, and, and that's why I say I'm so surprised that this hasn't been uh, uh, really uh, uh, commented on at, at great length by other, uh, other historians.
1: Well, it is. it's the it's a curious episode. and I'm so glad that you you unpacked it so well at the end of this book. Now, this has been a, a lovely conversation, and I'm so grateful for your time and coming to talk about this book. But before I let you go, are you working on anything new at the moment that we can be looking forward to?
0: <laughs> well, not really. i've I've got an an article in circulation. <clears throat> On the U.S. the history of the U.S. consulate in Belfast, and which I'd uh, done some writing on previously, uh, uh, trying to use it as an example of the of the elaborate process of um, the professionalization of the uh, of the U.S. consular service, which is useful because the uh, the Belfast consulate remained in uh, uh, in 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 office in practice from. Uh, uh 1796 uh right up until when i uh, i end the uh, the paper in 1906 um, so it it remained in, in in functioning during the war of 1812 uh so you can really kind of trace the development but that's that's the only uh, the only thing other than that uh, covid has given me an opportunity uh to review books so i've been busy reviewing books which i enjoy doing
1: well that's wonderful well, this has been a conversation with Dr. Francis M. Carroll. His book is America and the Making of an Independent Ireland. You can get your copy now from New York University Press. Francis, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of New Books in Irish Studies. Visit newbooksnetwork.com and there you can browse our library of over 12,000 author interviews covering any subject that your heart could desire. Whatever you're interested in, you're sure to find it there. But that's it for now. I hope you have a great day.